Welcome to Post Break. My name is Chris Peterson, Board Secretary of the Post New York Alliance. This is our weekly discussion of all the factors shaping our industry right now during this time. And today's topic is the business of animation, past, present, and future. Now to introduce our moderator, she's chair of the PNYA, president and COO of Travana Post, Yana Collins-Lehman. Hi everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you, Chris. Thank you everyone on the Education and Events Committee. And big thank you to today's panelists. We're so lucky to have them today. Um, first, I would love to introduce Mary Natolo, founder and ECD of The Studio, a creative production and animation company. She has, she founded it over 30 years ago, and I will let her uh, tell you when we get started all of her credits and everything that they do. We also have James Belfer, the founder and CEO of Cartoona, an award-winning Brooklyn-based full-service animation studio. He has also had an incredible career. And I would love to start the conversation out by having each of you, um, you can do a coin toss for the order. Uh, no, we'll have Mary begin. Start us off. I would love to hear the origin story of your animation house. How did you come to, and I ask this question because many of us on this Zoom meeting um, are just starting out in our career, switching careers, and I always think it's great when we have um, talented people like the two of you to just let us know how you came to be where you are now. Um, so Mary, would you like to start? Um, so thank you for inviting me here today. So um, I had a strange path into this business. I did not study art or design or animation or anything like that. I um, was a first generation college student I didn't really understand what college was, so I just took classes that interested me. And uh, I went to Gallatin at NYU, and that's kind of a school where you design your own major. So I was a philosophy and comparative religions major. And uh, I graduated with essentially no skills um, to <laughs> get any kind of job, but luckily landed at the Brooklyn Museum and had a kind of short-lived interesting career there. And then I got a Rockefeller Foundation grant and I went to work in San Francisco at the de Jung Museum for a bit. And I actually took a job back in New York thinking that I would, um, I got a job in a design studio thinking I would just do this until I saved enough money to go to graduate school because I realized museums was a highly credentialed uh, field and that if I didn't have proper credentials, I would not ever accelerate. So I thought I was gonna go to graduate school. Um, I never, I knew how to sew. I used to make my own clothes and I was always very interested in art and in this design studio, like it was kind of chaotic. And uh, first day I was there, somebody was, we were, they had an assignment to design a wine bottle and I saw people cutting out type, which I could do. You have to 33 years ago, this is what people did. There wasn't mm. the computers yet. And um, I did a little illustration and my design got picked and that started my design career. <laughs> so that was it. I was like, oh, I can do this stuff. Uh, and so um, I left that company and that's another long story. And um, 
thought I would freelance for a bit. And three years later, I had employees and I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. And so uh, I was a single parent, I will add. So it helped that I was actually gainfully employed at the moment and making some money. So um, I was doing design, illustration. I had two employees. Um, and then um, I got an Apple computer and there was a program on it called Quark Express, which I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. And I designed a brochure in probably four hours and by hand it would have probably taken me 12. And I was like, that's it. Everyone's getting computers and we're like, we're learning all this stuff. And we did. And then like very early on, I like we beta tested programs for Adobe. I beta tested After Effects in my office. It's like, um, and everything was gradual. You know, first it was design and illustration. I literally decided, I, I, I'm a very instinctual person. Um, when Steve Jobs bought Pixar, I was like, we're gonna become an animation company. I saw that as the future. So like I trained people in my office and little by little, we became an animation company. And that's kind of my origin story. Wow, that's so awesome. Thank you. <laughs> James, how about you? Uh, so uh, similarly, I had kind of a make em up major uh, at school, <laughs> um, which was uh, uh, not typical for, for Northwestern. I actually did it because I wasn't taking any of my prereqs. And my advisor was like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and uh, there was like a major that seven people typically have a year. And I was one of them. Uh, and more or less was studying uh, media theory. And so that was something that was always kind of fascinating to me, um, why things were happening in the landscape of, you know, not just uh, film or TV, but, you know, all kinds of media from the news to eventually social media to uh, uh, print, radio, everything. Um, I came out of school and I actually began um, as a uh, live action indie producer. Uh, I produced 13 independent films, um, five of which went to Sundance, one uh, winning a uh, grand jury prize uh, for drama. Um, you know, all of it did pretty well, you know, found distribution, everything was fairly lucky compared to most independent film producers, but um, it kind of felt a little too good to be true. Mm -hmm. um, and I was starting to get a little nervous. I just had a kind of a gut feeling that things, you know, weren't going to last. Um, and so just dove into trying to find out what is working um, in that day and age. It was about 2012, 2013. And uh, I basically just started, you know, doing all different kinds of things, documentaries, YouTube channels, Vine creators at, at, at one point. Um, and uh, we did an animated series um, as one of those initial projects. It was short series. Um, we basically just made a, a you know, two minute teaser. Um, and I'd never done animation before at that point. Um, it is a huge personal passion of mine. Um, I watch an unhealthy amount of cartoons, um, everything from, you know, some daytime cartoon network stuff to, you know, obscure anime. So um, and everything in between. So I just never knew that animation was something you could do. 
Um, I, I, you know, it kind of seemed like this weird, far away, you know, mythical land. Um, and once I did this first project, it, I was kind of like, oh, it's actually not that far away. You just kind of have to, you know, get your feet wet, learn the lingo and everything. And, you know, after a couple of projects, you know, you're just rocking and rolling. Um, and so um, at the time, at this point, it's like 2014. Um, what I ultimately was determined, what I ultimately determined in the media landscape was short form premium content was heavily on the rise. Um, Facebook had just created the capability of being able to natively upload, meaning you, you weren't sharing a YouTube link anymore for there to be video on Facebook. Um, Comcast had just started this platform watchable, CISO had just started, all things that are now shut down. Um, but um, especially when Facebook kind of got in on it, I said, all right, if Facebook is doing this, I bet within five years, they're gonna begin monetizing content and buying content, because um, that's what YouTube ultimately did. Um, and I was wrong because they ended up doing it in about three years. Uh, and so, you know, at the start of the company, we just went all in. We started producing our own uh, independent content, you know, a series that was about six to eight episodes, um, anywhere from three to five minutes per episode. All of this was um, adult comedy um, for animation. That was a, a specific gap in the marketplace we were noticing for premium content at the time. Um, and that kind of put us in a position where, you know, we ended up being, you know, kind of the, the first of a bunch of things. We were the first adult animated series on that platform, Watchable, which is a Comcast company. We were the first two uh, adult animated series on Facebook Watch, um, which one of, one of which was nominated for uh, Best TV Production at the Annie Awards. Um, in 2019, um, we were the first uh, animated series greenlit by, <clears throat> excuse me, greenlit by Sci-Fi um, as part of their new animation block, TZGZ. Um, and so these were things that, because we, you know, kind of said let's let's turn some of our R&D into just content creation, um, it kind of got us a little bit ahead in the game. Um, now there's a million different buyers, and so that strategy isn't isn't the best. Um, putting in a lot of money into making your own, your own show. Um, but, you know, because of all these buyers, it is an incredibly healthy market. Um, you know, as we're going to talk about now, um, mm -hmm. the pandemic also had a pretty significant impact on the market overall. Um, but when, when, you know, uh, when kind of everything started, everything, you know, in the studio just kind of, double down. You know, we had two projects we were doing at the start of, of, of the pandemic. We got about five more once the pandemic started. And so, you know, as a company, you know, we're only really uh, about five and a half years old. Um, but we just kind of came out swinging, tried to do as much as we could in, you know, the New York market, you know, because I'm never leaving Brooklyn for the rest of my life. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of where, where we ended up today. So can I get each of you, Mary, we'll go back to you. And can you just talk a little bit more about your um, actual business model of your animation house? I know that you do, you, you do a lot of stuff. So can you just kind of hum us a few bars about how it is that you generate revenue and um, 
I mean, the one thing I'm noticing that you both have in common, it's a little intimidating, is that you're both visionaries. Like there's a moment in each of your story where you saw the future. So not all of us, <laughs> you know, not all of us have that particular genius, but um, we can certainly um, learn a lot from how you, and we were talking earlier about how you staff, how you train your staff. So can you talk a little bit more like brass tacks about what your current business model is? So I'll go back to past a little bit. So when I first was thinking that, okay, I'm going to have a company, um, I was in Italy at the time and I was just like wandered into this kind of beautiful old church. It was just kind of not a famous one. And um, I just don't even know why I did it. It just like looked, just appealed to me. It just looked so interesting architecturally. And I walked in and I looked at this painting and it was really beautiful. It reminded, the first glance, it reminded me of Sargent's Woman in White because it was this giant saint figure with this white dress on it. And I was like, oh, it's beautiful. And it was very large. And I went and I looked at it and I realized something when I looked at it. So the face and the hands were very Byzantine. They were completely flat, but the dress was very mannerist. It was very, very, very dimensional. And as I studied it, I realized it was done by a studio. I realized that this was not the work of one artist. It was done by a studio and it was so stylistically different and so magnificent at the same time. And I was, I have to have a studio. This is why people have built these structures in the past because it's these kind of, you know, conglomeration of all these disparate people with all these different styles. And yet the heartbeats is one. You have this incredible thing that they made and if you're analyzing it from any kind of standpoint, you're, you're thinking to yourself, how does this work? It doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but it, it's magnificent. So I was firmly convinced that I would have, um, that I would go for the studio model. You know, even as people move towards um, a lot of freelance, which makes a ton of sense financially, believe me, um, I adamantly held on to this idea and um, the only way that I was able to perpetuate it, I realized, was that I had to make sure that I hired people for talent, but I made them train. And so everyone in my company does a lot of stuff, essentially. So if you went to school to be an illustrator and you're a really good illustrator, you're going to learn animation. You're going to learn different things. You're going to learn storytelling. You're going to learn sequential reasoning and how to do a really good storyboard. Um, and there are so many different levels of things that we've gone through. And that's the only way that I can keep staff because, you know, if I need, you know, an extra animator, maybe not the best animator, but my illustrators can fill in. <laughs> so, so they're slower. They're not as good. Um, they're, all, they're, they're making more changes, not because not every school is interchange, every school is interchangeable, but they're assisting in, in the community of work that gets done. And so we do use freelancers, but not as much as possible uh, as, as people would think. The other thing is um, I have very eclectic tastes and I'm sort of very ADD. And a lot of people have said to us when they look at our work, oh, you must use a lot of freelancers because the styles are very different. And they're not, we don't, we, re we never use freelancers for creative development. We're always using the same five or six people. 
are doing all the style frames and everyone, and you know, we usually start with a, you know, a research period, um, style influence. It most oftenly will come from the area that I'm most familiar with and that's fine art um, museums. We use a lot of crazy references for things, even for animations, I'll like reference, I want the texture of this Rothko painting and those, you know, uh, you know and, and we want to do animating textures. So we'll, we'll reference things that are, that are um, counterintuitive, I think sometimes to what it ends up looking like. But um, I think it's been liberating for me that I haven't, <laughs> that I didn't, that I didn't study this, right? Because I've been able to make my own playbook. And subsequently, I'm not, um, I didn't, I don't really think of us as uh, an animation company. I think of us as a more like a production company because mm -hmm. we do do live action. We'll do an Instagram ad that's just one illustration. I mean, we've done everything from feature length films to like clients will call me up sometimes and they'll say, I need a piece of line art for inside of a package. Can you do that for me? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> like I can't. Like I'm not at all, um, we're too fancy for anything. You know, I'm, I'm just not. I'm just like, it's all visual communications to me. And every piece of it is a, is a kind of a storytelling, which is pretty much the way I approach it. Um, James, sorry to get you mid swig. Um, you're, so you guys do in addition to, um, short form that you just described what other stuff do you guys do and and what's your business model um so going back to the start um so i'm i'm a producer um i founded the company with my brother he's a producer um we viewed the most important thing as far as being a studio was owning ip um and you know that is something that actually generates value over time. It's something that, you know, is a true asset. You know, why is uh, Disney so valuable? Of course, they're generating billions of dollars a year in the box office, but it's because they own Star Wars, they own Pixar, um, they own Marvel, they own all of this IP. Um, and so if we just started creating our own IP, um, at some point, maybe it is going to become even more valuable. Mm -hmm. The more IP that you stock up on, you know, the better chance you're gonna hit a home run or a couple of singles or maybe even a double. Um, and any of that would ultimately work on our end. And so we really, what we did is we raised financing um, and we just started spending it um, and spending it with, you know, caution, but ultimately with potential no prospects of, you know, it going anywhere. You know, it took us about two years before we actually were um, able to have a year where we were in the black and, you know, and that's just years of, you know, we were getting some work here and there, but, you know, it was nothing that was, you know, really making us, uh, <laughs> really making us any kind of, of, you know, net revenue. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when we started the studio, because we're producers, we said, okay, we are spending our own money. Um, how do we make sure that everything is as cost efficient as possible? And one of the most expensive things for a studio is overhead. So he said, forget the overhead. Let's just start working with islands of different animators. Um, we'll work with, we'll take chances on animation directors um, who we just really love their style, whether or not they've ever animation directed anything before. That was something that 
was really important to us and is just part of our DNA. Um, working with as many diverse styles as possible, not having a specific signature to the studio. Um, and what that ultimately did for us in a super weird fortuitous way that we'll get to eventually was we built a remote studio. Um, and we were operating that year for operating that way for about two years where you know, eventually we would have, you know, an in-house animation director and we would be bringing in interns or current or former students, um, giving them a stipend and having them work directly with our animation director, learning as much as possible. Um, and we would have them make Instagram posts for us. We would have them do things that were ultimately helping with branding. And so that was something which then became important to us, making sure that we're putting a brand out there um, as opposed to, you know, just focusing on, you know, how do we bring in as much money as possible? Let's get the brand out there. Let's get as much IP. And then from there, because we were operating without any kind of overhead, what we started to find was that we could get cheap gigs um, or ultimately, you know, sometimes just a freelancer gig. You know, we would do a Snapchat video for MTV. And was it the best paying thing in the world? No. Were we making a, a good margin? Not really. Um, <laughs> but, these were, but these were things that, you know, the larger, the larger animation studios would probably look at and just be like, that's not even close to, to you know, the kind of uh, uh, project we'd be willing to take on. We said, hell yeah, we'll take it on. Um, and ultimately what happened was that one project became two, became five, became 20. Now all of a sudden it's like a big client and you know, it worked out in that way. Um, but again, this is something because we were sinking our own money into it. We were able to take on things that you know, a lot of studios you know, normally wouldn't. Uh, so with all that IP that we created and started going out into the world, like I said, um, in uh, 2016, 2017, when a lot of these companies officially started, uh, you know, launching, picking up content, you know, we were licensing it, we were selling it, um, and we were doing well with it. Um, then, you know, like I said, eventually, you know, all of these new streamers caught on, you know, the new streamers came up, they wanted adult animation, existing channels. Um, started to create new adult animation, you know, verticals and hiring new execs and everything. Um, and so at that point, um, we needed to really shift the model where, you know, IP is still important, um, but now we need to really be approaching it more from being a um, more traditional production house, um, developing IP, doing this in-house. Um, you know, we recently brought on an SVP of development who is just going out there. He's finding things to license. He's finding uh, creators that we should be partnering with, um, finding scripts, books, kind of you name it, taking that, packaging it, going out and selling it. You know, that's something which is very atypical for a traditional animation studio. Mm -hmm. All of this is because, you know, we're, we are focusing on IP, IP, IP. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are now as far as uh, our, our model goes. I know there was a first part of that question that I totally forgot, but. No, it's okay, you covered it. You covered it really well. So now I feel like everybody has a good sense of your companies, what it is that you do, how it is that you started, how it is that you're currently structured. Um, let's segue into a question that 
many on the Zoom call will be able to empathize with, which is um, what would you say is the hardest part about being a business owner in New York, owning and operating your own studios in New York? Um, I'll start, I guess. Um, so I will say pretty much everything and I'll just add another uh, multiple to that as being a woman-owned business. <laughs> it's not easy either. Um, I mean, I am completely self-financed company, um, never got investment because that just wasn't an option for women and it probably isn't so much even now. Um, and even strangely, even as a company that was you know, billing millions of dollars could not get lines of credit from banks. It was just incredible. And so I basically, I would say my first 10 years in business, I made a business out of adding and subtracting. Like, okay, I've got this much revenue coming in. I spent this much money. And I would say if you're relatively good at math and I'm not a business person, but I can add and subtract, until your company reaches around $2 million, you can kind of run that P&L in your head. And then after that, it gets really complicated <laughs> to do that. And then you start to really start thinking about things like other types of things and it becomes more critical. And then I really had to seek out lines of credit and things like that because, you know, it was also corresponded with periods in time where a lot of our clients, big Fortune 100 companies were switching to like 90 days, 120 day payment schedules. And so uh, I really needed to kind of learn some stuff quickly about business. But I, I would say New York is a very, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn, I'm from New York. So I, I've been here almost my entire life. I was in San Francisco for two years, but mostly I've been here. Um, New York's a really hard place to do business. Um, a lot of it has to do with real estate. Uh, the real estate is so expensive. And as I was saying to you earlier, and then it, it, it's a trickle down thing from real estate um, because your employees are renting or buying. And so you have to pay them accordingly. They need to have a decent standard of living to be happy, fulfilling employees. So if, if my company were someplace- Well, hello. If my I'm company sells, <laughs> I would not- have the same, um, I could probably- uh, Just a second. Can we make sure everybody's muted who isn't speaking on the call? Thanks. Sorry, go ahead, Mary. No, so that's it. I mean, a lot of it is pertaining. So it's, it's a, it is a hard place to do business and a lot of it is pertaining uh, to real estate. And I think um, I haven't had the easiest time of being a business owner as a woman. I have to say that too. That's a whole other conversation, but um, not for today. But um, the other part about being in New York is that it's an incredibly rewarding place to be in New York. And if you're, if you're looking for inspiration around any corner, every place, if you're looking for an unparalleled talent pool, if you're looking for just, uh, I don't know, uh, a joy of thinking what the capacity of the human spirit is, New York's the place to be. And James, I know that you're a very devoted New Yorker, you'll never leave. Um, so we're not asking you to disparage 
your love of New York, but just as a business owner, I mean, would you agree it's, it's really real estate um, that's tough? And, and you guys don't currently have um, brick and mortar in the city. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, that, so that was something where, you know, we were operating out of a co-working space because that allowed us to expand and contract based on what we were working on. If we had a project that needed 10 animators, great. We have space for 10 people. We have a project that needs 60 animators, great. We have space for 60 people. Um, given everything going on with COVID, none of that makes sense anymore. <laughs> and we're not going into the office anyway. So we said, we're month to month, let's get out. Um, and yeah, um, you know, I mean, just that model alone was based on making sure that, you know, we're being as efficient as possible with New York rents. Um, and I know a lot of people right now who, you know, they're still paying their rents, um, you know, Mary, Mary. <laughs> um, you know, and it, and it's, and it's tough. Um, and, you know, they're not, they're not sure if, you know, as they're getting, you know, TV gigs and big gigs that are supposed to pay overhead, you know, now they're not necessarily getting anything. They're getting 50% um, covering their overhead. And no one knows if that's going to continue on for years to come or for forever. Um, but I'd say the biggest thing with New York is that in shocking news, LA has a much wider talent pool, um, you know, with a lot of them even being New Yorkers. Uh, and so like the way I kind of view it is that, you know, with New York, you have to work twice as hard with half the resources. You know, we have great schools uh, of animators in New York, you know, SBA and Pratt, um, you know, and also New School, um, NYU. I got to shout out my alma mater and my, and my employer. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the issue there is, you know, they're like, we're an independent studio. Um, so we have a TV gig, great. Next day, we might not have a TV gig. You know, animators have to go home. Animators are going to go work for another studio, on and on. You know, sometimes we, we do bring on animators full time, um, but that just depends on a number of different factors. In LA, you have Disney, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, um, and a ton of other huge studios that will never run out of work. That like, you'll never hear of Nickelodeon studios not working on a TV show or film. Um, it's just not happening. And so, you know, a lot of artists, that's kind of the, the golden goose for them. Like, I want to be a board artist at Disney TV. And that's understandable. Um, and so what we ultimately got to do is try to get in as early as possible with, with young talent, mm -hmm. you know, really forming good relationships with the universities, um, trying to get a feeling for current students, really um, trying to connect with and view the work and begin to even work with um, very recent students. And, you know, a lot of the times they decide, you know, maybe I'll stick around for a year, see how it goes. And, you know, we kind of give them a potential reason to stick around. Other times, you know, they might work for us for like a couple of months, go to LA and we never hear from them again. So, um, I mean, that's, that's really the, the biggest thing. Um, you know, there, there are a, a enough, you know, large animation studios in, in the city that, you know, competition does become a thing. You know, I find myself um, having animators poached for me left and right. And frankly, I do the same thing to the other studios myself. Um, and, you know, it just kind of goes, it just goes to, you know, probably the, the New York City ethos in general, just, you know, you, you, you've got to fight tooth and nail. And, 
That's what makes us New Yorkers. Yeah. And that's also what makes the Post Alliance so unique is that, you know, we're all competing with each other by day, stealing each other's talent and, you know, outbidding each other for jobs. But then, you know, we get together for these nice calls and we're all friends. But um, I do need to pick your guys's brains about one thing. We won't belabor it too much. But in 2013, the um, Post New York Alliance uh, was instrumental in passing a tax credit that in our dreams was supposed to create a massive influx of animation studios and the animation business to steal it from LA and steal it from Connecticut and um, land it here in New York. And um, sorry, I'm shaking my computer. And um, the credit is that it's um, a 30% credit on spend um, for animated features or television shows that are scripted. So no documentaries, no reality, no variety. Um, and it's everything is incentivized from the storyboard to the DI. However, um, you know, since 2013, it has been a fairly underutilized credit. I think maybe like Dora the Explorer gets it, but other than that, um, not a lot of action in this credit. So I wonder if you could make any changes to it, if the idea is to create jobs in New York State around animation, um, how would you like to see the credit revised so it was it would be used? I mean, you know, all, all of the kind of bigger projects that we've gotten, you know, our show with Sci-Fi, we just had a show with Comedy Central, our shows with Facebook, um, they're under a half hour and TV, uh, a TV series is considered a half hour here. You know, and these are quarter hour things, you know, these aren't, you know, doing three minute, three minute episodes. I mean, it'd be great if they could give it for, for that as well. Um, and just like, you know, providing these services in, in general, you know, 30% is great, but I go down to Atlanta, I'll get 30% on literally everything. I'll get it on my cast. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things that I've even found in the credit that are just kind of confusing. I've called out before, um, you know, in uh, live action films, you, uh, you have the casting director count. In animation, it doesn't. <laughs> and that was something which, you know, it's either an, an error in, in all the documents that they, they provide, or it's just this kind of weird discrepancy. Um, you know, that was something we found out because we're producing an animated feature film. So awesome. We get to qualify. Um, the, the issue is that animated feature films take a very long time to make. <laughs> um, and with the credit in general, you know, you finish your, your film, you're going to wait, you know, another year, if you're lucky, <laughs> um, to, to get it back. And so there's just a ton of different barriers, um, be it you know, length of project, uh, how long it takes to even what it, what it ultimately applies towards um, that just makes it, you know, difficult. Um, you know, we, we aren't, you know, going and opening a studio in, in Atlanta or, you know, in Canada, which is becoming more and more popular. Um, we want to stay here and, you know, we'll do it, but it'd be, you know, a lot better. Our, our networks would be happier because <laughs> they would, they would, you know, either not have to put in as much or they'd get a bigger bang for their buck. Um, but 
yeah, I'm I'm embittered by it. That's good. I'm happy to hear. What about you, Mary? You want to? Well, personally, it's even from 2013. It's really behind the times of what content is. And if the goal is to keep jobs here, then the job should be for any kind of animation, whether it's a you know a webisode, uh, an animated piece of content for Instagram. Uh, it should be anything, anything that's substantial. A series for Instagram, for example, should be something that qualifies. Um, I think you know for us, and I said this earlier on the call, it's actually fairly hysterical because we've done huge sections of animation for two documentaries. Oh well, can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> even though even time-wise it qualifies, 40 minutes of animation doesn't qualify. I've done two hours of animation for corporate clients. If the job is to, if the idea is to encourage uh, an industry here, then that should qualify, even though it's for you know uh, a corporate education. Um, I've done jobs for Scholastic that don't qualify. I've done jobs for Sesame Street that don't qualify. Um, you know, I've done, I did a series, just finished five episodes on a series for Comedy Central. Doesn't qualify because it's live action and the animation portions aren't long enough. Mm -hmm. So it's like they're in 33 years of having a business. I've not done one project, even though I've got films and award-winning series, like everything you could, everything that you can think of I've done. I've not done one project that qualifies with this tax credit. And I think it's kind of ludicrous, actually. Um, really not I great. don't think the idea is job creation, to be honest with you. I think it's one other thing that's geared towards bringing an industry to a place, an industry that benefits owners and not workers. And if the, the idea is like with a 30% tax credit on two hours of animation for a, um, you know, for a corporate client, I could hire another person. <laughs> so it's like, if that's the goal, that tax credit is me hiring other people. That's what it, that's what it allows me to do. And um, I will say this because I don't want to forget this thought. I'm a much more terrible business person than James. He's much smarter <laughs> than I am because he, he's gone to the idea of IP and like the, the virtual office. I don't, I've not ever really run my company as a business in the same way and not very serendipitously have actually managed to make money, but <laughs> not sure why when I listen to smarter people. Um, but I think, um, you know, one of the things I do in my company, which I think has been really valuable is that I train people. And I, I'm on the board of a high school in Brooklyn. I've taken kids who like don't even have computers in their house and I've taught them animation. It's like, this is the kind of company that we should get tax credits for this kind of yeah. stuff. So, and, and I'm not alone in doing this. Other people mentor people, other people are on boards, other people do all these things. And um, if the goal is to keep jobs in New York, then there's just be like, it's animation, show it to me. If you can look at it, here it is, here's the link, approve it or don't, watch it if you like. But if, if that were the goal to keep jobs here, but the, that isn't the goal. The goal is to bring an industry here, an industry that's never coming here. It's mm. firmly entrenched in Hollywood. Um, and would you say it's, it's the biggest competitors or like the locations are LA, Atlanta, and Canada, or just LA? 
Um, for Most talent in the U.S. talent, sure, it's L.A. I'm with James. It's like uh, yeah, I've had tons of kids work for me, and then they're also, and I want to go to L.A. I'm like, great, after I've trained you, go. But yes, I, L.A. for sure. Um, but I think from a business standpoint, in going to a place like Canada or a place like opening an office in Canada or opening an office in Atlanta is, is smart if you're inclined to do something like that. Because New York is not an easy place to do business, and it hasn't, and this tax credit has not benefited a lot of companies. So I, I'm cynical, I have to say. Although I realize how difficult it was to even get that, but I am cynical about it. I appreciate it. I really appreciate hearing from both of you on that. It's very informative. Um, I wonder now if we could just briefly, before we go to the questions, um, do you feel like this global pandemic and being forced into our homes or forced to Florida or forced to where we are, um, do, you, do you think that the animation business of the future is going to be changed by this in any particular way? Is there going to be more of it? Will you be more profitable because the remote model somehow will save you money? Or what are your thoughts on the future of the animation industry? Um, so I do think that for me, I'm, I'm a little on the fence about this. So I'll tell you that I do definitely think this has been kind of a saving time for animation companies, unlike my colleagues in live action production who are really, really struggling right now. So we've been blessed to have skills that transfer to the present, you know, method that people are finding for entertainment. Um, I am pleasantly surprised at how well we are working remotely. Um, and I think that every time I talk to people on the phone, everyone is on the phone with you for a slightly too much time <laughs> because people really are craving getting back together. And I do kind of in a way, and this could be me just not wanting to have to deal with trying to get out of a lease, perhaps I could be because I'm very good at self rationalizations. Um, I think that it will get back a little bit if we ever get past this pandemic to the time where people used to come and sit in your office for an edit session. That just went away. Mm -hmm. People were just like, send me a link, <laughs> you know, put it on wire drive. Like, you know, that just went away. And we very infrequently, we used to have people, we had, we had two client facing editing suites and they would be booked all the time when we first moved into our space that we had prior to this. And we were there for 12 years. By time the lease was like in its fifth year, if I, I think in between, there were a period of five years where I did, I only had both suites booked uh, at the same time, like three times in five years after them being booked together all the time. So I do think that people will kind of um, want to come back to be in a creative community. I think people will want to do that. But I do think that I will never, ever, ever imagine a company where people come to work every day, nine to six, and like, you can't just say, I'm not coming to the office today. Mm -hmm. um, but that comes with its own set of expenses, by the way, because 
we're at the moment we we let people take their equipment home with them right so it's so a our 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 office is housing our server which we're working on but people went home with quite a bit of equipment if people were to be like i'm working from home and i'm also working in the office that's double equipment that you have to provide your employees so everything is going to come with some kind of a cost i don't think you know i don't think working will ever be the same for anyone for maybe at least a decade i i just feel like people have just had day in and day out with no distractions of the same thing and so it doesn't take it takes like something like 48 days to form a habit if you do something for 48 days straight we've been doing this like multiple times already so we're we're habituated to this mm-hmm. um the world has changed what do you think james yeah i mean that was something which you know like i said in the start we were a remote studio operating as a remote studio we kind of you know, learn some tricks in order to, you know, operate efficiently and knew what some of the problems were going to be. And, you know, we actually were about to have um, a project in which, you know, about 20, 25 artists were all going to be working remote on a single project and, you know, totally fine. That's how we planned it. We knew that's what it was going to be. Um, Then all of a sudden overnight that went from 20 people to 100 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's something where, you know, okay, we've like done this before, but now we've never done it at this scale. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of new issues and things that popped up that, you know, um, if and when we do it again, um, we'll, we'll kind of have an idea of what we got to do. Um, but, you know, these projects that we were doing, um, you know, throughout the entire <laughs> pandemic from day one to, to today, um, actually, Tuesday was when we literally delivered the project. Um, so, um, you know, we, you know, those were all like quarter hours or even a little bit less. Um, what's going to happen when tomorrow I sell 10 projects to Netflix <laughs> or even just one project to Netflix and I have to figure out how to do, you know, 13 half hour episodes? that's going to be insane. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we, even though we started as a remote studio, eventually, you know, as we, you know, got projects and we got, you know, um, gigs in which we could, you know, now afford to have, you know, some people in house, we'd love to bring people in house. Now we were going to have 65 people um, in house for for the sci-fi project that we were working on. Um, We were about three weeks away (laughs) from having all of those people in. We had the, Offices all set up, all the all the brand new equipment, everything you needed, and you know, we we probably have about 15, 20 Cintiqs that you know are never been touched, um, and who knows when they ever will be touched. Uh, so, other than you know, unpacking and repacking them. Uh, so, you know, obviously the whole world has changed right now. Um, thinking about how we were to, if, if we were to operate as a studio, you know, in the near future, um, it would probably have to be department heads. And, you know, that could be a staff of only 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of sucks. <laughs> um, you know, it also does, you know, hurt a lot of that kind of bringing on people who, 
you know, don't have a ton of experience, be they, you know, recent grads or someone that just never worked in a, in a studio or on a TV production before. And, you know, we would sit them right next to the animation director and, you know, they have a question, they tap them on the shoulder and they turn around. You know, now what we ended up seeing, one of the big issues were, you know, people didn't want to come to us and say that they were having problems. Um, you know, they're, they're happier to kind of be like, hey, can you help me with this? It's much more difficult to say, I'm screwing up. <laughs> um, and we don't find out until it's way too late. Um, and we tell them, come to us, we don't care, we don't care, but they don't listen. <laughs> Everyone gets, everyone's too, too nervous. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of working in the home environment that people struggle with. Um, you know, we had a couple of people who specifically said this, you know, they always like to work in a studio, they, they get distracted, this isn't something that, you know, really, really works for them. Um, and, you know, there's just things you could, you could never anticipate, you know, you're an, you, you get evicted, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're, you're working on a project and now you don't have anywhere to plug in a Cintiq. Um, probably the craziest story that we had on this past production um, was one of our animators was on vacation two weeks before production was going to start, um, broke her leg surfing in Morocco uh, and was in the hospital. And all of a sudden, the country shut down and she wasn't allowed to leave. And so she was in the hospital room without any of her equipment. She had an iPad um, and she had no idea when she was going to come back. And it ended up taking five months of her living in a hospital room in Morocco, animating off of an iPad before she was able to get back here. And she literally from day one to her rap was working off of an iPad in Morocco. It's like, we have no idea what, what's going to happen, you know, be it the pandemic or how, you know, everyone is going to eventually adapt, you know, as, as networks, as clients, as buyers, everything. So, you know, it's, there's just so much crazy uncertainty. Well, thank you guys so much. Let's, uh, let's throw it to some questions. Chris, have you picked some questions for us? Yeah, we have some good ones. Um, I think we have some people considering transitioning from <clears throat> regular editing or regular video production into animation. So if you could give us kind of a high level, what makes editing animation different from editing live action What's the software? What's the hardware? What's the workflow, et cetera? Um, so I always say if something, the animation is done well, it doesn't need a lot of editing. <laughs> so, um, but I do think that uh, I, of, of all the disciplines, the thing, the one that I respect the most is editing. I think editing is the thing that can make something terrible tolerable and make something amazing 10 times better and bad editing can ruin something. And it's hard for anything else to have that much of an impact with the possible exception of sound. But um, I think that it's a very, very difficult thing. And I think it takes a lot of um, not just um, visuals acumen, but it takes a lot of brain power to figure out what goes where um, in the best way possible. And so I always think that editors 
can transition to anything um, if they're good because um, they've basically figured out the formula of sequencing. Um, and so for me, that makes them the most important people in the storytelling process um, of, of live action. Well done animation, the, the animator is also an editor because he's making decisions right all the way through. So if he's doing this in a, in a very good way, it should need very little editing in, I would say in something that's short of a film. For a film, it's different. For a full length film, you will obviously need editing. Um, but for something that's like 12 minutes, 15 minutes, the editing is not that important. Um, having said that, I don't know that I answered the question. So you go, James, and maybe answer the question better. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the biggest thing between editing and animation and live action um, is in live action, you get coverage. You have multiple takes. You maybe even have multiple camera angles and shots that you did for that specific take. Um, in animation, your coverage comes in the audio. And so dialogue ed editing becomes very, very important. It's definitely more important than you know, when you're editing the, the finished project. You know, editing is obviously important, but the other thing that is you know, more important uh, you know, is then compositing. Because you know you're an animated project, you could have 600 individual shots that all need to get rendered out before they get assembled, um, and you know you have to basically put the shots together <laughs> and make sure you know all the different elements are are you know not just edited together, but are actually you know assembled from you know you have to put the background behind the animation. <laughs> special effects over the animation. You know, these are things that are part of the editing process um, where, you know, yeah, special effects in live action, you have to add it on top, but, you know, unless you're doing a green screen, <laughs> you know, you, you have the whole shot and the whole vision just right there in hand right off the bat and, you know, you don't have to build anything. I think you talked talk everyone out of it. Good, okay. More questions, Chris? Yes, uh, similarly, on the same topic, what skills or software should live action AEs and editors hoping to transition into animation try to learn? And what are the resources for learning that process on a technical level? Where can, where can they go to get these skills? I mean, I would say just start with the Adobe Suite and, and After Effects. You can do a lot of, of pretty basic animation in After Effects. Um, and it's obviously really helpful to know because there is motion graphics, which is its own separate, separate industry, right? So if you really master it as a tool. So if you're thinking of learning anything, I would say After Effects is probably, I mean, for me, it's like if you're going to transition into anything in the visual effects or and anything in the animation, visual communications field, I feel like Photoshop and After Effects are like the lingua franca. You have to know them pretty well. Um, and you can probably, if you're good at them, you can probably make a pretty good living. What Mary said. Great. More questions, Chris? <laughs> um, I think we have a lot of people interested in getting into animation. 
Um, the next one is in a studio setting, do you have staff members that don't necessarily have animation experience? Would you hire people who are writers, again, editors or directors who haven't worked in animation per se before? Yes, um, writers particularly, um, any, any writer that we've ever worked with who's never done anything in animation before, it becomes like the number one thing they love because you know, they don't have to worry about doing, writing anything, you know? They wanna have a, a unicorn jump out of a ice cream cone and explode into a million pieces is right on the page and we'll do it. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot, there's a lot in the transition that, you know, definitely works out. Um, you know, like I said, dialogue editing, that's something which, you know, is very different than it is from normal editing. Um, you know, we've had uh, people who are maybe, uh, you know, designers taking on different kind of roles within um, an animation process. Um, you know, we've had a lot of animators that have never, sometimes never worked in the softwares that we're, we're doing. They kind of have to learn it on the fly. <laughs> um, so, you know, we definitely find, you know, one way or another people who have never worked in animation before ending up in different different aspects of the staff especially on the production side you know the producers pms all that um it's funny i have the so i would say directors and writers for sure definitely no no question i would say the one thing that i've had a problem with is producers um a producer doesn't know anything about animation i've had a hard i've had a hard time Although I think in general, I'm really bad at hiring producers. Um, it's been like, I very rarely have fired anyone over 33 years except producers. <laughs> I think I'm really bad. I just have had a really bad time with producers. All right. Next, um, how, how would you like folks to pitch to you? Um, is that how you gather IP? Do you take pitches from people or are you more out soliciting pitches? Um, or do people bring you their IP that they've thought up and you decide whether you would like to develop it or not? Um, we, we kind of ebb and flow. Um, you know, right now we are doing a lot more outward um, looking for stuff um, and not you know, getting incoming pitches. Um, you know, all the stuff that we initially did, the first 11, 12 series that we produced was all incoming submissions. Um, we're kind of like through the grapevine finding out about someone or someone finding out about us. Um, but yeah, right now we're all, you know, going out there trying to find, uh, you know, a book or trying to find some big production company. They have some IP that they just don't know what to do with it. Um, cause they've never done animation before and, you know, looking for a production partner. So, um, you know, it, it just kind of varies. Um, I would say for me, we're not, um, I mean, people have brought us IP and we can decide whether or not we want to, um, develop it or not, but we're not obviously the same kind of company as James's. So we're not, we're not, uh, producing, you know, serialized content or anything like that. We're more like, we're more like a traditional production company. We're like guns for hire. So I'm smarter than I am. 
James, do you, do you identify genres or, or stuff you want to find and go out and, and look for it then? Or? Yes. Um, the biggest barrier for animation is that everyone thinks it's, you know, dick and fart jokes um, and it's family guy and it's big mouth. Um, but, you know, animation is a medium and that's what we've been going in and telling people. It's a medium. It's not a genre. Um, we want to do a drama, you know, we want to find, you know, a way to do Rami, you know, what that series is on Hulu, um, you know, Undone, which was a, a, a recent project, you know, on Amazon, We'd love to do something like that. Um, you know, so we're, we're kind of going out, we're trying to find things that are, call it atypical, unfortunately, for the world of animation. Um, but you know, if we, there's a comedy that we really like, um, or someone who comes to us with a comedy we really like, we're not going to say no. Um, but, you know, right now, a huge focus of ours is to expand uh, uh, genres, not just for us, but for the world of animation. And, and are you seeking more adult, not adult in, in the traditional sense of the word, but, but are, are you seeking genres other than animation for kids? Oh yeah, we don't, we've we've never done and probably will never do anything for kids. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's our only IP is is uh, animation for kids. By the way, <laughs> so that is, um, we actually right before COVID we were in discussion with uh, about an original piece of IP that we have, which of course got curtailed by COVID, um, which would have been an amazing project. But yeah, that's the only IP we have. Probably the youngest we would go is. Uh, adapting something that's YA, <laughs> which, which we're actually looking at right now. I'd love to do a YA animated project, but that's because I watch, you know, Riverdale and formerly the society. <laughs> that's an interesting distinction to make though. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think it's, still think it's, it's for younger people, but there, there's more and more a broader audience for animation out there now. Um, Mary, you mentioned that 90 and 120 day payment cycles. And does that essentially mean that, that you're financing the production or at the very least that you're kind of loaning money to your clients by waiting for that long? By all means it does. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think this is not a tendency, not just for people. And I mean, we generally get money up front. Thank God that part has held, but the, uh, the, the terms on the back end have been negotiated over and over and over again. And some clients simply don't pay. I mean, I waited 12 months to get paid by one of the biggest soft drink companies in the world. I will say, I won't say it's wrong. Um, I knew I'd get the money, but it was really annoying. Um, and the time suck to just stay on top of it. And honestly, um, for a little company, it's like that could bankrupt you. But I think, to be honest with you, this is a trend in business. I know so many, um, particularly women business owners, who have found these payment cycles from these Fortune 100 companies, uh, they're killing them because they all do it. They all have these terms. Um, they even put out RFPs, they say it and write in the RFP, like we pay on 120 days. I participated, I don't know if anybody knows what, and I totally am spacing out on the the term for it but it's it's kind of almost like a it was an rfp for for a contract 
um, and you were live bidding on prices and you could see what everybody else was bidding, right? It was the most hysterical thing that you can imagine. But the first part of it, which I didn't contribute, I didn't participate in this part of it, where people were negotiating on terms and the starting point was 120 days. So people were saying they would, they could get paid in 130 days. And I'm like, this is madness. We're talking about one of the richest corporations on the planet. And they're asking people to work for them and not get paid for months. It's, it's utter madness. And so we ended up competing in this thing. And I was really organized. I had at the time, um, <laughs> this, I, by, by fortune, um, these Columbia students were doing, a, I was doing a project with them. And one guy had worked for McKinsey and he was like, oh, I'll help you figure out what this is. And he was just like, he just sat there with me and was like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. So I was just like having this genius guy from McKinsey sitting behind me telling me like where I could go lower and where I can. So I ended up being considered like they, they broke it down. They picked like three prime suppliers and I was one of them and they called me up and they were like, we're picking you, but you know, cause you were the third person, but frankly, you're 20% higher than the other people. Can you go lower? And I'm like, absolutely not. Like there's no possibility where, where is this other company located? And it ends up that it was a, New York based company, but they were really a, uh, a company in, in the Philippines. And like, mm. I know that they paid people like $500 a month there. How can I, I was like, how can I compete with somebody whose labor costs are $500 a month? It's like not even possible. Like you should make them cut their price 20% because they're making crazy profits. <laughs> it's like, we're just like eking along here on this. And so this has been a trend. This, this, this auction that I participated in, was right after the economic crisis in like 2009 it was but it was a pretty substantial piece of business but it's like at some point it's like it's like you say you do these projects right and they're like why am i doing this but then you get 10 of them and it's like oh yeah okay so i made money here you know or 20 or 30 and so it was a, it, it was a uh you know it was a numbers game basically if you get a, if you get enough of them it's profitable but, but like first few are not <laughs> But yeah, yes, that's welcome to doing business with uh, as a small business with no leverage. But I wonder if a wise client company would be wary of taking the absolute lowest bidder kind of bottom of the barrel thing, because then there could be a question of, about quality. Right? No, they wouldn't. Absolutely not. Because I think what happens is particularly around advertising is that it just became staying top of mind. And I'm sure you've all have seen, particularly on, 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 you know, not so much in broadcast, but in, you know, in any kind of web content, I'm sure you've seen the most hideous, stupid crap put out by major brands. And it's because they just think if you just put your name out there a thousand times, people will remember it. And it's just about staying top of mind. And they just went for the lowest common denominator. That's it, 100% across the board. <laughs> so it was just about more, 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 more. Um, there's a, I mean, I could, when I'm out of this business, I'll do, I'll do a seminar about all the people <laughs> who have literally destroyed the eyeballs of the young with the crap they've been putting out for the past decade. <laughs> we'll host it. Have yeah, we'll sign you up. Yeah, <laughs> we'll schedule it. Um, 
Well, thank you guys. I really enjoyed this. I learned so much. Um, so nice to get to know what you guys do more and um, so interesting. Really, we are in a, we are in quite a time. So that's it for us, right, Chris? I, I could have one more question. Oh, sorry. We'll, we'll uh, divide up into the breakout groups. But I have someone pointing out um, some really great animation is shorter than 30 minutes, like Steven Universe, Regular Show, Adventure mm -hmm. Time, We Bear Bears, and others are all around 10 to 15 minutes per episode. Um, so I think a question around that would be, could future versions of the tax credit reflect this reality? Please. Hopefully we're trying, we're doing our best. Yeah. We've got a lot of problems, you guys, but this is high on the list, so. Yeah, one of the things that I've had them say when, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, saying, hey, you guys changed your mind yet? Um, they're like, well, can you combine your two shorter episodes into a longer one? And I was like, I, that's not how it works. The project that we, that Trevana worked on with Cartoona, I was calling Connie and being like, come on, this is crazy. It's like, yes, they're short, but they're it, all together it's lots so yep. and they know that the clock is ticking on the way that they think about this it's just and they know the branded content is now considered like creative and fictional and scripted and so it's the changes are imminent it's just um you know right now that we even still have a tax credit at all is rather a miracle since the state is you know pretty close to you know no one paid taxes and July, like April, they pay taxes in July. Hopefully, hopefully by September, the state will know what, what the coffers are looking like, but it's grim. Yeah. So we're just, we're happy to have anything at all at this time, but it's important. I mean, if they really want to have an industry here and if they really want there to be jobs creations, then they have to make these changes. So we'll work on it. Okay. Terrific. Um, I'm going to start a one-minute timer. So whomever would not like to go into, into the breakout rooms, if you could jump off the Zoom now, and that will keep our numbers consistent. And Yana, thank